0: what in addition to the right equipment does it take for the job of film editing welcome to the cunning room the official podcast of aotg.com i'm your host gordon burkell and this episode we're going to be talking about lorena we're interviewing Azine samari and she worked on the four-part documentary series lorena that i was obsessed with it was a very interesting doc series i would recommend it even if you like myself lived through the Lorena Bobbitt, John Bobbitt saga because I found the structure really interesting. I found how they sort of position the characters or position the people and guide you through the story very interesting. And it's interesting to revisit that era with new information. Now, our regular editor, Carly McKeating is off in Korea temporarily. So in the meantime, we have Naraj Patel cutting for us. We'd like to thank Naraj for doing that. With all that said, here's my interview with Azim. So my first question is going to be, in this documentary, there's sort of an issue of the reliable narrator. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you see John and he's telling us one thing, but we don't know if we could trust him. And then the way it's sort of set up with Lorena is we don't know exactly what the truth is either initially. So I'm wondering how you tackled editing this initially or editing the series. It's
1: actually interesting because I think that it was always going to be a series that was going to give Lorena sort of a chance to tell her story in a way that we'd never heard it before and initially the first episode was going to be Lorena telling her backstory and then all the we four editors we all edited our episodes and then we watched them together and then Jordan Peele our executive producer also watched and the second episode was about John Bobbitt telling him about his about story you know he watched it and he said you know we all experienced this story as kind of a farce we heard John's side and that was kind of what we remember." And it would be interesting to kind of start there instead of starting with Lorena. Kind of start with what we know and kind of expand our knowledge as you go through all of the episodes. And so we did that flip and it kind of changed how we experienced the whole story. While we kind of never say John is an unreliable narrator, I think seeing him stacked up against everybody else, it kind of lets you know that maybe he's not to be trusted. So it was really interesting when you put him first and kind of let it unravel that way. I feel like it, you know, it kind of became a much more interesting way to experience the so recap.
0: That actually leads to my second question which is i absolutely loved the structure of this film like just how it was organized i guess it took me on an emotional ride in the sense of like i'm like okay that person's bad or okay i feel this way towards one person and then we slowly switch it and sort of reveal other things so is there um, i guess how did you work with the director and the other editors to develop a structure
1: It was an incredibly collaborative environment where we all watched rough cuts together. We all had lunch together every day and talked about what we were watching. When we initially started, we each had kind of a piece of a story. And then as we kind of watched together and discussed together, we started shuffling pieces around. And that kind of big restructure of telling John's story first, that came from Jordan Peele and, and conversations with the directors. And that was a really smart Kind of way to approach the story because I think what we found is that the humor is such an important part of the story and it's kind of the thing that we were all fixated on and what made it kind of a tabloid sensation. But once you got into what was behind the humor, it was difficult to go back to the humor, and so it made a lot of sense to start with it because once you got into what Lorena was going through and domestic violence and all of the kind of what was underneath, it was really hard to kind of go back to to what was funny about the case. So. I feel like the story itself, you know, kind of naturally found its form that way and in our screenings. And, our you know, we, and we played with structure a little bit. Initially, the trial was one standalone episode. And then we found that it was a great skeleton to hang Lorena's backstory on because she tells her whole life story in the trial. So we spread that out. And, and, and so there was a lot of sort of shuffling of pieces. And we actually had time to do it. That was something that Joshua and Stephen, the director and producer, made sure of that we had time to shuffle and really come up with the best version of each piece of the story.
0: Now you you had to do a lot of shuffling. Was there you know, was there anything that you really liked that like a scene or a moment, but it just didn't support the story or wasn't gonna fit in the in the, the four episodes, so you had to leave it on the cutting room floor?
1: Yeah, I mean I think a lot of what sort of ended up on the cutting room floor sadly it was a comedy <laughs> because it was so hard to go back to once you delve into, you know, the reality of the case. But there was a lot of very funny John Bobbitt material and kind of how he continues to live in this thing that happened to him. He's got all these ideas of side businesses that he wants to create. One of them is that he wants to market the set of kitchen knives that, you know, one of which was actually used on him. He had a plan to kind of, of rebrand them, and, and you know, John Bobbitt's steak knives or something, I'm not sure. Another was that he had this idea, he thought this would be a great wedding gift, it would be a framed knife with a glass and a sign under it that said break in case of emergency. I mean, these were all kind of his crazy musings. And then, You know, there's like even more that he he had this whole idea that it wasn't Lorraine who actually cut him, but her uncle with whom she'd been having an affair. There's kind of all these crazy hysterical, and I think most of it was centered around John, but it was, there was just kind of no room for it.
0: Yeah, he's got a weird place in society now, and it almost feels like he doesn't know what to do with his life, in a sense. Like, it's kind of a weird, sad story, but also you see what he's done, and you're like, okay, I get it. (laughs) I kind of get where he's ended up.
1: I mean... It really was the best thing that ever happened to him. And he th- he seems to have no sort of skills mm-hmm. and no way to function in the world. And so he keeps kind of falling back on this thing that happened to him. And it's been great for him. I think, I don't know that he would have been able to make a living, you know, without having had that.
0: Yeah. Now you talk about the humor and there's one thing that sort of, because it does get heavy in a sense, because we're talking about, you know, a lot of heavy subject matter, but there is sort of one I guess, interview subject or subjects that just I absolutely loved. And I'm wondering what the footage was like in dealing with them. And that's the neighbors, because that couple seemed like such a unique characters. And I'm wondering how you how you utilize them to lighten the mood, but also, you know, keep us on track in in some of the darker stuff.
1: They were kind of right there. They were right underneath her. They were very close to her and they You know, I think we use as much of them as we could because they they were very funny, but they were also so human. You know, I I don't know that they would have necessarily been sympathetic to Lorena. I I mean, it it don't seem like they would be. I would say the same thing about the two sort of younger men, Jonathan and Kalpua, the the two boys who would spend time with John. Like these are kind of people who you might not expect to take Lorena's side. They're a little bit rough around the edges. But they're so sort of wonderful and humane and they were her support community, but they're also incredibly hysterical and little things like the fact that that their dog keeps kind of wandering into frame and, you know, like it was just sort of wonderful, wonderful moments of levity. To be able to live in those interviews and play those moments out really kind of helped. And it also kind of helped bring you back to this kind of small town, this tiny apartment complex. The neighbors all knew and could see what was going on. And so it kind of anchors you a little bit and takes you out of the tabloid world of that story. And then there's kind of the wonderful surprise of the wife saying that she had also been in an abusive relationship. It's kind of this thing that, that a lot of these people echo in their interviews, which is so poignant.
0: Yeah. And there's one thing that you sort of touched on earlier, and that is this being in the tabloids and being sort of everywhere. And I'm wondering when we go through the night and we sort of we're experiencing that moment, there's still a sense of suspense. And yet we all know the outcome. So how did you guys tackle building suspense when basically the cat's out of the bag? We already know the, the outcome. We know that it gets found. We know that, you know, it's going to be reattached and what have you.
1: I think I feel the suspense in the disparity between the two stories. You know, I I think that John kind of tells his version first and then Lorena tells her version. And I feel like that there's room in the margins for you to try to figure out whose version of the story is true. But there are kind of certain facts that in both tellings float to the top, you know. John talks about how, oh, I only had a couple of beers and, you know, and then we kind of see in trial, his friends say clearly that, he you know, he's had more than a couple of beers there. You know, he says, oh, she's very sort of vague about whether or not he assaulted her that night. And, you know, I mean, there's kind of, I feel like the suspense is in trying to figure out what actually happened. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's clear cut by any means. And, and then there's the question of her state of mind. Like, I think that, you know, there's a little bit of suspense in that, you know, kind of seeing her retell it. You kind of want to, you know, sort of suss out whether or not was this insanity, of, like what was going through her head. And, and we had a lot of sort of very, you know, interesting debate about that amongst the editors and the director and producer. But, you know, was she insane or was she just kind of driven to the edge? And so, you know, I, I feel like... There's a lot of things that are unknowable, even though we know the basic facts. But I think, you know, we we'll kind of, we'll never know what happened in that room. But I think, you know, all of us can take a pretty good guess based on whose version we believe or who sort of rings true.
0: After seeing everything, like seeing all the footage and, and talking about, or seeing all the interviews with Lorena, did you feel, um, I, I almost feel like if I was in the editing room, I'd be protective of her in a sense, because you see how much she was put through. In society, just as like essentially every everyone was talking about her, and so there's this sort of weird thing where we're talking about her again, so as editors, did you guys feel protective and like, okay, you know let's hold back on certain things because we don't want to do this to her again or anything like that?
1: I think we all sort of. Empathize. It's hard to watch her interview and to watch her testify in the trial and not feel, you know, that she would, kind of was put through the ringer and that she went through a really difficult thing. And so, but I don't know that we were protecting her. I feel like we, you know, she, we did the interview with her and we used all the pieces that we needed to tell her story mm-hmm. without intentionally trying to protect her. But I think we all believed her. And I think we all understood that she'd been through something sort of horrible, not just with John, but with the way the media treated her and then the trial and and kind of probably the aftermath. Um, I think we were all kind of sort of happy that she managed to land on her feet in a way that John didn't. But we, we didn't sort of keep, you know, keep everything, anything out of the story that might look bad for her. We definitely included it all. I mean, you know, she did a couple of unexplainable things. She had chocolate goods and that's in the story. She had sort of embezzled money from her boss. And those would have been the things that we sort of might have held back on. Yeah. But those were also kind of interesting. So we we did include as much as we could and didn't protect her. But I think we all definitely believed her and empathized with her.
0: Yeah. There's one point in the story where I, I can't remember who mentions it, but they talk about, I guess, essentially 24 hour news cycle starts to come up around this time. There's sort of evolution and then Court TV. So did you guys, how much footage did you guys end up having? And how did you guys weed through it to find the story?
1: I mean, it's interesting, like with just specifically the trial, was a challenging thing because it aired on CORE TV in its entirety, but CORE TV no longer exists. And so all of their tapes are kind of in a weird limbo. They were kind of in a warehouse somewhere. They were completely unorganized. And so we didn't have access to them. And I think we, you know, our archival producer tried to negotiate access to them and couldn't. And so what we had to do was actually go to a bunch of different News sources, including CNN. And there's this archive named CONUS, which Mm -hmm. primarily deals with like local news stations and they kind of archive all of their stuff. And so we had to basically piece together the trial without any real transcripts because there wasn't a transcript of the trial. And so we had sort of hundreds of clips, all out of order. We had dates, but we didn't know kind of you know, where they went in sequence. And so I think I spent the first maybe two weeks piecing together her entire trial, trying to, you know, like we have parts of some testimonies. Regina Keegan, who becomes a very key character in episode three, we didn't get her testimony until very late because nobody could find it. And finally, I think we found it in somebody's, I think if CNN had sort of a thing online where they described what's on each tape, and that's where we found it. And so it was a lot of work to just kind of get all of this stuff. I mean, some of it was not very well documented when it was sort of put in archives. But yeah, there was an incredible, a huge amount of archival material, news stories. There were so many news stories, and it was kind of daily on CNN. I think, you know, when we did an initial search for archival on CNN, there were sort of hundreds of hits about that trial and that case. Because, you know, that it happened in June and the trial was in January. So it kind of dominated the view cycle for months. So there was a wealth of material.
0: How did you deal with the court cases, which is what you were talking about, in the sense of a lot of legal stuff can come across really dry. Like, I think a lot of people don't realize how slow trials move and how not like television they are so how did you approach working with that footage to make it more engaging but also with the legality of things so like there's a talk about the laws and how you can't rape your wife in certain states or i think in the entire country so how do you tackle educating us about that without you know keeping the audience engaged i guess during that content
1: I think it was a lot of sort of distilling to the most interesting moments, but I did watch the whole trial and there was a lot of boring legalese. But what I also found fascinating was that it must be a Virginia thing. They're very expedient. You know, they picked their jury and were already trying the case within the first day. So it's not, you know, I feel like I read a lot about cases where they do, you know, they're kind of like trying to pick a jury for three weeks or something. And um, for some reason, it was just a very speedy process. I think his trial was only three days and hers was, I think, maybe six or seven. So it's almost like they have a shorthand. And it was a shorter trial anticipated. I think what we really wanted with the trial was to show that she wasn't in a vacuum. There were people who saw what happened to her. And then we wanted to kind of bring out her mental state. And and how that was the thing that kind of freed her with the uh, sort of insanity and the the sort of insanity plea. And I think that was the most challenging thing was to explain the insanity plea and this kind of idea of irresistible impulse, which is a very specific kind of insanity plea that only exists in a couple of places. So um, I think that we relied on the most emotional pieces of the trial and testimony and then only dipped into the legalese when we needed to because it wasn't sort of essential in our telling of the story. We just kind of needed to understand, you know, what her plea was. And, you know, it was fascinating, for instance, that the same prosecutor tried both cases. That was also an interesting thing that we had to explain. Like, why did Paul Ebert do that? But I think we tried to keep it sort of keep away from that stuff as much as possible because it was dry and not not so interesting.
0: Now, I have one last question I like to ask everyone I interview, and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch?
1: Oh, my God. That's such a hard question. Um, I mean, late night, whenever The Breakfast Club is on, I will watch it. It's still kind of, you know, evokes a lot. And I I love it. Um, But yeah, that's a guilty pleasure, I guess.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for letting me interview.
1: Thank you for the questions. They're great questions. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. That was my interview with Azine. I'd like to thank Naraj for cutting this episode. I'd also like to thank Azine Samari for joining me. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.